uh, he he told me one day in the kitchen, you know, Mum, there's a there's a good possibility I will die, and I don't want you to have to go through what I've watched you go through twice before. To have to go through this a third time is too much. And uh, I sat at the table, and he he was standing. We used to have these really serious, heartbreaking partner conversations. We had them quite often because Fergal said things the way they were. And I just remember the rain outside and Fergal always liked the rain. I just remember one evening it was darkening and I was sitting at the table and he came he came into the room and he started to talk and I knew this was coming up. I could feel it in, in, in the air between us. And when he told me, you know, it's not looking good for me. I, I knew myself it wasn't. But to be able to that courage to say to your mother and hear yourself say that I, I might die, you know, I might, I might be gone from here, you might be on your own. Kathleen, you are so welcome. Thank you. Kathleen and I met last week uh, in the Whale Theatre in Greystones for the screening of A Love That Never Dies, which is a documentary, beautiful documentary, which I've featured on the podcast uh, about parental bereavement. And Kathleen is no stranger to parental bereavement, having lost your three beautiful children, Gronya, Dara and Fergal. That's right. Yes. Yeah, Kathleen, there's so much to talk about. I know we've so much to talk about here. Where would you like to start? Um, just where I am today, I guess. Uh, yeah. I have been, I wrote a letter to the uh, Irish Times and it went viral. And it was myself sitting there one day before Christmas in my dressing gown thinking, you know, Christmas doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. I should be out following people around the streets and going shopping, making Christmas, ordering a turkey ham, the usual. But for some reason, I felt, uh, I felt I was different. I was um, within another uh, plane, that I wasn't somebody else. I had not changed. My son had died a year ago. Uh, and I'd lost Ronnie and Dara uh, years before that so uh, I took pen to paper which is what I tend to do when I need to empty something out yeah. from within. You're a natural writer. And so I started to write and uh, this is what happened. It came out, these words, uh, how I was feeling, how I felt, how I felt hidden almost to the world behind some curtain and I was looking through the pane of a window and there was some wall almost separating me from the rest of the world where I was within and they were without. And it was through that image I 
I wrote the words that appeared that I sent in. I reached out to the world myself, though I hadn't planned to do so. Yeah. And by doing that, within hours, it was printed the following day. And somebody, lots of people out there, put their hand out and touched mine. And I was carried off on some sort of uh, whirlwind. Yeah. Call it a magic carpet, I don't know. But um, that was before Christmas, the week before Christmas. And now it's, you know, into just St. Bridget's Day, early February. And now I'm beginning to descend in some way from that back down to my own reality, my own chair, as I would say, deep seated, allowing me to settle back down again from this whirlwind into real life, what I would call my reality. When you say a whirlwind, you know, the Irish Times printed your letter. Uh, It went viral. It was being shared all over social media. You were invited to speak on The Late Late Show Mm -hmm. and you had several radio interviews as well. Yes. Gosh. Gosh. Yeah. Kathleen, you said you wrote the letter, you reached out to the world. Mm. What were you reaching for? Nothing that I did in reaching. It was almost an invisible reaching. I had no uh, plan to reach and I didn't decide to write the letter. It, It wrote me in some way the letter visited me in some deep place and this these words came out like like from a bird's beak they just fell out they uh, they took flight and they landed somewhere it was almost like for me it was very out of body experience it wasn't a physical experience it was something that needed to happen and it did and I was in some way the channel for these words in some way uh, that's the only way I can describe it because I've told people uh, that I, I made no decision conscious decision to do it uh, I write and I was just writing words on the day what made you send it to the paper what was different about these words or this state of being that's that right. made you feel I I want someone to know about yes. my internal landscape and my pain. Absolutely. When you say they're looking through a window pane. Yes. P A I N. Catch that. P A N E. That's right. Yeah. That's right. What made just you to catch on the word there? Yeah. Um, I'd say I'll just rewind a little. Uh, a few months ago, I began a writing group, just myself and another human being called Catherine O'Donoghue. Um at my table in my kitchen she sat at one end I at the other we both write poems and so we had a certain amount of poems that we wanted they were thinking about maybe having published at some point we wanted to rework them so it was from that point that we began Pagan Pins we both loved that that those lines we were like oh god they're great words Pins Pins Pagan Pins P-E-N-S so, because we had a lot of discussions around, you know, writing, what writing means to us, what living in this world means and, and the different concepts of religion or spirituality. And so we'd come up with this. We both, they were coming from a pagan place, uh, a place of, uh, a place of, I suppose, looking at time and looking down the line and wondering how we can celebrate, say, anniversaries even 
for my children how I could can remember them because I've been remembering them for 18 years because my daughter died 18 years ago so we were looking at that whole thing of ritual and what ritual means and it was through that that we came up with the pagan pens uh, but um, we've had several meetings we've written some work and we've you know edged it out to one another and we've done a little bit of brainstorming and all of that so it was through this that um, let's jump into the next field that I'm thinking about and that is I always wanted to write something for the paper I suppose I always wanted to be a journalist from the age of 15 but I was born in a very rural part of First Common so uh, it never happened um, so there is a man I know who's 103 and uh, he's a friend of mine he's in my whatsapp photo and I want to find out how he feels about the world he lived in a different century to us to me and so I, I bought a, a recorder one of these uh, little gadgets and in some way I, I was trying to make an arrangement to go down and see him in conscious common and sit with him now he has hearing aids that he might hear me and we might be able to engage a little bit together because he's a lovely man he's very bright he used to fix clocks he lived on the bog road at home so I remember him for many years anyway since I got the, the gadget, I've been thinking maybe I'd write something about Michael Coyne. Maybe for the common people or whatever at home as a local story. And so I think there was something going on inside me where I was thinking about peace. But I know that our homework was going to be um, a piece for the stage. That's what we were doing that week. And so when I began to write these words, it was some sort of a monologue I had in mind which turned out to be these words and it was through that in some way that I felt it's the paper it's 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 going out there I might send it to the Irish Times and so, so there's been creativity brewing for months <laughs> the creativity has been somewhere yeah. there and uh, I looked at it on the Monday and I wrote it I wrote first draft it was nothing really just just a few ideas I went back on Wednesday and I revisited and did a second draft and on Thursday I spent three hours there and I did some editing and so my my beautiful son Fergal died uh, the 2nd of December 2019 and his girlfriend who was very close to me Becky Long um, runs in and out to visit me every now and again and she was coming uh, the next day and so I text her and I asked her if she'd have a listen because Either her or Catherine O'Donoghue, and Catherine was gone off to see her boyfriend um, to Drogheda, so she wasn't around for sounding. So the next day, it was Friday, and Becky came in and she sat at the table, and she, I had texted her, you know, that I wanted her to hear something. So I read it, and she looked at me and she said, yeah, that's okay, that's, that's good. What are you going to do with it? And she said, because I have a little idea off my sleeve. And I said, well, I have a little idea too. We both turned out the same idea sent it to the times sent it to the times except that my uh, that my laptop was broken and I was waiting to get a new one for Christmas and she said look my laptop's in the car and she ran out and came in and she started flying away with her fingers <laughs> playing music yeah. and I was reading it and I stood up and I, I could feel myself tensing and I could feel the sweat on my brow and I was like oh my god is this happening is this happening and so some, some more editing ha uh, had to be done just a few more words were taken out and the next thing she had her finger ready to press send and 
gave a quick look at it, did a, a check on the spell and everything, and next thing, press, bang, she's gone. I'm like, oh no, oh my God, oh my God. And so, you had no idea what was I had gone. no idea, except that this thing had just sprung and she had taken this, flight. <laughs> at this point, will you read it out, please, Kathleen? Because we have many listeners. I don't think I have it with me right we'll, this we'll moment. We'll pull it up on your phone. We have many listeners, not in Ireland, who may not have heard it. Okay. Gosh, why didn't I remember it today? Oh, girl. So funny, Kathleen sitting here. Technical. Kathleen sitting here with her phone going, where will I find it? It's like it's all over the internet. You can find it anywhere. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm going to read um, this piece for the Irish Times. At this time of year, families are dreaming of seeing their loved ones. The loved ones coming back by sea are touching down on tarmac, flowing through the arrivals lounge of airports, warm-cheeked and teary-eyed, breaking the barrier to the warm, homely arms of childhood, are coming home by car, snapping the car doors shut for a while and walking in the front door of old familiarity, the family home. This is miracle-making. Eighteen years ago this Christmas, my first child of three, my daughter was very ill and she died early in the new year. It was a meteorite falling on a family that was already rocked by loss and absence. Since then, our family has been cruelly paired back to one, myself, the mother living alone at home. At night, I sleep to the rattles of an empty house. Even the wind has a faraway cry when it rattles at the window. My three children, my daughter and two sons, died from cystic fibrosis, a genetic disease of the lungs. They lived a full and spirited life together. Their illness did not define them. They were witty, intelligent and gifted, with homegrown talents that filled this house with music and liveliness. They expressed their true selves to the world of their friends and gave of themselves freely and honestly. Losing a child is like having your heart torn out and your stomach emptied. Grief gets in the way of daylight, not to mention the nocturnal dark. Christmas is a black surround without tinsel while the masses are plumping up the shopping streets. But grief can be another day on the wheel when paradoxically a blue sky can unveil a white egret appears in the branch. I have named him Doy after my youngest son, whose pet name was Doy. He will fly and land with me as I walk beside the river in the valley behind our home. Before Doy died, his dark eyes looked ahead and he said, Look for me in the trees. I will be there in the trees. Kathleen Keyes Feels like so. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. Such a privilege, Kathleen, to sit here 
as you read that. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Liz. And always said that. Look for me in the trees. I did. What was the context of that? How did he know that you might find him in the trees? Well, it was just, I suppose, minutes before he, well, he had called up the medical team to uh, to take down his uh, IV, take it out of his arm, because he had decided that uh, that he was calling time on this. He'd been on antibiotics for a few months and he wasn't making headway then. And I think he knew himself that, you know, his time was up. Um, he's very bright and very intuitive. And he was very vivid in how his face looked. His eyes were very pertinent and he was looking ahead. And we did what he asked. We called the doctors up and myself and his dad Aidan and his uh, brother, Fergal, who has since passed away, was there. And uh, he was saying all these things. How old was Dara at this point? S uh, 19 and three quarters. 19. And he was calling it. And he was enough. calling it. And he was talking about how much he loved us all. He was saying goodbye, really. He was preparing to to leave. Did you understand that at the time? I did, but I I was in shock. I was very still and I know I was in shock, but uh what my ex husband did uh is he he pressed record on his phone and I wasn't even aware of that at the time, it was after that that we discovered that he'd recorded what for what Dara was saying. And so I after he had talked intimately and, you know, told us how much he loved us and, uh, you know, he said, Mum, we're very close. I can't imagine two people closer. He told Fergal how much he loved him, what a great brother he had been, and his dad, that he loved him. And I just remember they had given him some morphine, as far as I remember. I haven't really gone back to this, these moments, and sifted them too, too much but uh, I have written them down I'll revisit that writing but I remember he's too he looked like a French boy he, his skin was lovely and, and, and soapy just very uh, satiny almost and, and pale and his eyes he had two big dark eyes and long eyelashes and had this black hair long hair down around his cheeks and thick lips which he took from his dad um, and he looked straight ahead like he could visualise like he could like he was seeing something like somebody was there now and he was so so alive when he said those words oh uh, I'm, I'm going to be in the trees look for me in the trees and he was he was so sure that's where he was going to be, almost like something right out there down beyond the end of the bed, right out through the wall he could see was telling him where he was going to be. He said, That's where you'll find me. You'll find me in the trees. And I was 
trying to imagine because my mind was going at a thousand miles an hour which trees are what will, will they be the trees behind the house are they the trees out here beside the hospital because we looked out onto a golf course and there were trees there and I had looked out onto that golf course so many times when he was you know when he was happy when his friends came in earlier in the admission when he was uh looking at the um, Formula One racing when he was playing video games with his friends. But this was at the last, the last minutes, I suppose, when we would be in his company, when he would be conscious because they were coming up with hard, heavy drugs. Yeah. And I was looking at his eyes and I was thinking, how long more will I see your beautiful eyes and your beautiful face and hear your voice that you'll be here in front of me? conscious just just warm and comforting and my son the son i love so much with life with life having yeah. life and also um being able to impart his thoughts to us look at us the familiar faces his mother his father his brother that he adored and loved and he would be going to, now to his sister who had passed on 10 years previous so I can feel it all just in my chest right now. Mm. A very visceral experience. Very visceral. His, his eyes were like so dark and they were so alive and so uh, in the moment, so alive. Stuff was happening. He may have been on another plane. He was seeing like some some pictures, some life. I imagine on the next stage of his life where he was going to that we couldn't see and he, it those words came out they were almost out beyond him they were almost out beyond us because he was looking at us lovingly mm -hmm. giving his last words and thoughts to us and then he looked out beyond it's like somebody was pulling him out way beyond where we were in the room so there wasn't suffering. You could really see he was already a step a out step. of his body. He was a step out of his yeah. body. Absolutely. Did you find him in the trees, Kathleen? I did. Or do you? I did. That's a beautiful egret. And for a long yeah. time now, for a couple of years, this egret sits, not always, not every day, because I walk there at least once or twice a week. Which trees in Bray? Are they the trees in Bray near the The trees house? in Bray behind. Yeah our house there's lots of trees and there's a river there's a beautiful brook and you can see a lot of birds down there a lot of uh, you know sea sea life and uh, the white egret sits in the, in the trees very uh, almost unconsciously doesn't want it's hidden almost but it's sort of a cream very narrow bird when it's sitting but when it lifts itself to fly, it expands right out mm. of those massive wings. And just, you can hear almost the wind flapping as it rises. But I love to look, I call it, I call it he for some reason, because I call it Doy. And so Doy's spirit is there. And it's like, oh, there you are. So I start talking to the egret. And then he'll, he'll, he'll look out and then he'll lift and fly. And I'll walk after him and I'll find him again further up on the next tree and then he'll wait there for a little while and I'll stand back because I'm ever so respectful I don't want to enter his space in case I frighten him 
And I love that you have an egret. For most people, it's a robin. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you have this beautiful, majestic egret. It's majestic, quite, yeah. uh, as I said, quite narrow. And a little bit like Darrow in the sense that Darrow wouldn't be putting himself out there. He'd be very witty. Darrow made movies. And, uh, you know, he carried a camera on his shoulder and he had a comedic eye and everything he saw, he turned it into something funny and he'd film that. He'd get his friends. Everybody had a part in the play. He'd put up stuff on the window. We'd say this green paper that kept out the light or whatever. It was, he, he was very well versed in, in filmmaking. And he did all these videos and they're all on his laptop at home. I'd say they're amazing. <laughs> they're an absolute legacy where to most, Where most 19-year-olds are wondering about where they're going at the weekend <laughs> or who they're going to ask out on too. a date. Dara Yes, is... he liked that too because there were girls and lads. It yeah. was very organic. They were all filling the room and his eyes were twinkling around. He had this sort of quizzical little face. And... Uh, very bright, as I said, you all the movies of the time. But if he saw something, he turned it into something funny. He would he would have watched Dunbelievables. So he took them off and himself and somebody else would have a cap on and, uh, you know, the voice and all yeah. that and a desk ready and they'd do the two policemen down the road. And then, then he did the kitchen in, which was uh, my my kitchen transformed into a, into a little bar. And Brilliant. he was behind the bar. I think you talk his about friend, this on the Troy, late night, don't you? That's right. Well, yeah. Was sitting up on a high stool. Yeah. And he was feeding Troy. Will you do something Lots with these drink. videos? Absolutely. Yeah. I intend to. They're a project waiting oh, to happen. Absolutely, yeah. He has them saved and restaved. He was a tech. He was tech savvy. Yeah. Um, he lived in the age of tech. And, you know, that's how he saw the world. Yeah. So he'd spend hours editing these and uh, filing them away. And so they're... They're, they're saved and saved and saved and he's friends. He's also a musician and uh, he loved Phil Linnett and uh, he played guitar and he had uh, a band. So he didn't have a wasted moment on this earth. No. As the other two in. didn't either. Yeah. Um, I guess losing their sister when Grania died was a wake-up call for both of them of the fragility of life That's right. and how nothing is guaranteed, particularly when they both also had cystic yes. fibrosis. I and they died from a complication to it, didn't they, Kathleen? Yes. It was That's a bacterial infection. That... That's what happens when you die yeah. from CF. It's, it's as a consequence of the chronic illness itself. Yeah. But the thing is, even going back pre-Gronia dying, Gronia was very lively. She danced and she was in Bellicus Angel. I can go back even and find her part there. She did drama, live wire. They, it's like, yes, they did know they had CF and they knew that their lives were of a shorter time. But there was something there, almost, it wasn't even reasoning for, oh, well, you know, our lives are going to be shorter here. It was something more deeper and invisible and organic. Uh, something that's the place where we find our words deep, deep down in the cave of ourselves. Uh, it was either their own uh, spirit that had been born and shot out uh, I don't think it was through even conditioning of saying well I know at some level which probably was mixed with that on a psychological level yes our, my time will be shorter so I'm gonna I'm gonna start running you know I'm, I'm off the blocks here yeah I, I, it was something innate something I, 
It was an intangible thing. And with the three of them, that was present. And it was very observed. They were very observant as well. I said, Grania was an observer of people. She was a mimic. And I said it on the Late Late Show. But even when she came down to rural Ireland where I lived, there were uh, two men down the road, bachelors. And, you know, it's just watching people, observing people, Mm. and turning it into something incredibly interesting in vision, you know, across filling the pipe, like I said, and lots of other things. I remember her friends used to say, like, they'd be on the train with her and she'd have them in stitches. Just, it's different. And she was little. She was young when she died. Well, she was 15 and a half. She was at the cusp of sort of childhood womanhood. Yeah. But it's a way of seeing the world differently. You described Uh, it like that they... They used something about the windscreen wipers or something. That's right. Wiped away all the It's like a seeing and knowing. It's like a deep wisdom. It is. It's deep wisdom. A deep soul wisdom. There's no place for nonsense here. There isn't any time for nonsense. And it's not even maybe the time for nonsense. It's just, it's editing out that nonsense all the way. Just, Just keeping it clear. Seeing an honesty. Having honesty in what's what's witnessed a, wit- you're, a witness you're yeah. like that Kathleen am I oh, are God, you like I that because I stand up to my children of, that I can carry are you like that because of the grief you've been through absolutely or do you think you've always been like that um, there's always been a bit of that I think but more so living a life uh, living a life you know where there is illness and your children are suffering you're, you want to take it away from them you want to pocket it you want to have it yourself and say off you go into the sunset I'll suffer this, but you can't. That's the heresy of it. When did you find out that the three of them had CF, or was it one by one? Grania was two. Mm. She had been, you know, she she'd been a healthy looking baby, but she she had a few chest infections, and she had some. uh, uh, There's a problem with CF where fat isn't digested, so she had some digestive problems also, and uh, so she was diagnosed at, at two. So Fergal was six months and they checked him out and they had to do it three times because he was in between. He turned out to be the wellest of our three children. Uh, And then, so he had CF technically, but he was very well. And then we we went and, and had Dara four and a half years down the road. One in four chance with each pregnancy and prayed and hoped but it turned out positive when he was sweat tested it turned out positive so um yeah so 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 he was again at birth he was diagnosed because he didn't there's no time to waste that they automatically will check each child and is that, that something that you ever get used to Kathleen you know living with three three children with a chronic illness like that there, there hardly was time to to, to make a rational decision as to whether you were going to live with it or not. You were blasted into it in some way, parachuted right down into the situation. There's no, you know, you're 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 working away, you're you're doing the physiotherapy. Yeah, the shock at the beginning, being told, was like the ground went from under your feet. Like being told somebody is dead. That realisation well, it isn't a realisation, then it's just a shock. I remember that day when we were holding Grania and and, and Fergal at the hospital 
um, um, across the desk from a consultant who told us and uh, no in fact we didn't hear the diagnosis we, we were at home when we heard it and Grania was two and she was in a high chair and myself and my ex-husband were there in the hall and the, it was the landline that rang it was hanging on the wall we were waiting for the the ARNA and it was it was yes she has cystic fibrosis and I sat on the stairs I remember and my, my husband uh, then Aidan put his hand out and took my hand and that was it for you then so to walk into the kitchen through the hall and view Grania in the high chair she was a bunny baby of two and it was summer it was beautiful sunny weather and it was the it was two days off her second birthday I could hardly do it because it was like the shock we both had to absorb in the hall walk in it just took me a few minutes to go in and be able to look at her face and say this is the face that I will lose this is the beautiful child beautiful bunny baby that I love that will close her eyes someday it, it, it was like all of that was there to deal with straight away and the hurt of it of looking at her beautiful uh, mm. cheeks and her big blue eyes and her little bunny arms like flying up in the air to be taken out of her high chair. It was like that sickness that hits your stomach. The powerlessness. The powerlessness where yeah. the ground just starts yeah. to go. It's gone. You, your legs aren't your legs anymore. There's nothing holding your body up. And you still have to lift her out and and smile to her and put her sitting yeah. somewhere and turn around to go to the sink and think, I have to get her food. What will I do now? Or I have to what will I do next? And you're stuck to that spot because there is absolutely nothing you can do next. Left, right means nothing. Straight on means nothing. Turn around, put your eyes on her again. And it's like, it's, it's pain. There's pain enveloped in the body then, in the mind. Mm. And there's fear, pain and mm. fear mixed and life never ever is the same again it's never after that quite moment. the same I mean yeah. you take your time and we went into the hospital and sat in mm. front of the consultant and heard the details that was in a few days after that that was hard and we had to wait for Fardell's results to come back and so we had two children with CF then and then we had to start the long road of home management and trying to give them the best years that they could get and the longest years and the most loving years that any child children could get. And that's that was the next that was the next test and and that rolled rolled in. But one is never the same with the outside world, with people coming in, with one's sisters, brothers in law and cousins, nieces and nephews, because in some way everybody is a stranger after that. It's like you're propelled onto a different frequency. You're, you're, you're on a different on. frequency. Yeah. They will never understand yeah. your bones and the pain in your bones mm -hmm. uh, because they won't know how to because they don't have the same situation. So there is a massive glass or wall or whatever, a pain that's erected between you and the world and the outside world that one has to get through and go out and join them and see your child playing with their friends and know their friends will have will go on and this this these reminders keep mm. keep coming running towards you 
saying, remember, don't forget that now. Or you, you have to find a way of having that information, sifting through it, absorbing it, and making it in a way where that you can live with that. Yeah. But then you'll hear the coughing and the you know coughing up the mucus. The hospital will be ringing you. You'll be on your way to the hospital, coming in. You know, listening to your child's. And chest, is there always them. the fear of, is this it, or could this yes. be it, or well, might this be our last trip in? That's that's that has been like that for yeah. years. The early admissions to hospital. Yeah. We were getting used to it, and you never get used to it. God, it's like yeah, living needles, on a razor's edge. Needles being pushed into your baby's yeah. uh, vein, and them crying. And you, you want to run down a corridor and keep running and never come back. You just want to yeah. keep running. Because uh, I remember on Grania's first admission, that happened, see, seeing a cannula go in. Uh, we were away. We went away on holidays to Lanzarote, away to come home. She, she got she got ill over there. And uh, it was warm and hot and sweating. And she was coughing. And they did an x-ray and they found that she had pneumonia. So we had to get two seats back with two babies. Uh, well, two two young children on our laps and get straight into Temple Street and that was like a movie that's you're in the fast lane you know you're just yeah. going 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 and then the needles and the IVs and everything start and the heavy gear the heavy gear of, of medicine and the stuff that hurts your beautiful child and you're looking into their, her blue eyes and the paradox and she's crying it. to you yeah. mummy help but I, but I can't but I want to run down that corridor and just keep running but I can't so you've got to stay steady and hold your bone and you know remember your feet are on the ground and, and just keep cuddling and Growing softly back talking into their, into their ear yeah. and so you know as they got older and even coming now to when they were young adults uh, what you're asking me there about that awful fear of the next time you know when the lung function is is lowering and the the uh, lung diseases is, uh, is height, heightening, uh, and there's only maybe half the capacity there, quarter the capacity. Then other side effects will come to the body, and um, every time there's another infection on top of an infection on top of an infection, uh, this awful pain, this awful terror, it's terror creeps is in your body constantly you're fighting off the terror will this be the last uh, time we go in for antibiotics and the last time did come uh, it, it, with Grania uh, Fergal and Dara the last time arrived that did happen that was a fact that happened yeah. it wasn't just something that one is uh, fearful of that might be oh you know why are you worrying don't worry unnecessarily yeah. these are all very very real live worries they're uh, they're not uh, silliness it's not nonsense it's not oh you're looking for attention it's none of that it's real 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 with a red light flashing over mm. it's reality it did happen and it's now in the next phase down that road what do you do with yourself? What do you do with your time? What do you do with life? Who are you? Where's yeah. your identity? Sliced up. And you're very early in the next days because Virgil only died 13 months ago. That's right. 
you know. So that's right. After Gronya died, you had two little boys to care for. Yes. After Dara died, you still had Fergal to care for. Yes. So. And you had him into adulthood, and he was twenty-eight. Is that right? He was thirty-one. Thirty-one. And so, what had to be minded there was, mind your beautiful child, who's left grieving and who's broken-hearted, and who's doing all this internalizing, that they have the same disease in their body, and that they will go to bed tonight, looking at that horror movie, of their own life slipping away. So you have to mind their grief. You have to be there, present, on your feet, standing, touching the spot, not running down the corridor or out the back door. You have to stay. And that's what the parent of a child with a chronic illness has to do who may have a shorter lifespan, is stay on that spot rigidly, continue to love, continue to help, continue to share their burden. Do not walk. How did you do that? How did you show up again and again and again? I showed up again and again and again through absolute an entire love for my children and love, love, love could never be taken away, could never separate me from my children's joy, from their sadness, from their suffering, from their from their lives. Love could never separate me from them. Uh, and I knew that there was never a time when I had to think about, you know, that the, the I suppose, that, um, I'm lost for words now, that idea that I mightn't be able to be there unless I became ill and died. Uh, I did become ill. I was quite ill uh, during their time because stress, I think, began to lean on me and bend me. But I was never gone. I was. I might have had spells in hospital. There were the times I was gone from them. Or I'd go away, you know, for a few nights and their dad would come, you know, because he wasn't living with us then. At what point did you separate, Kathleen? Um, it happened in 2001 on New Year's Eve and I'd prefer not to go into this aspect because um, I think I should I shouldn't yeah um, the point but, is but it was incredibly were, difficult you were parenting home alone it, it was incredibly difficult is what yeah. is, is what I I'm saying, I suppose, uh, yeah. it was incredibly difficult on them because they had huge losses, huge traumas, not alone the trauma of, say, for the boys, their sister had died, uh, but their father wasn't living there anymore. Yeah. They were getting sicker. So all of those layers uh, were very heavy. They were heavy layers and heavy burdens. And so um, that they needed, they needed a lot of attention. And what just I'm hearing being is there, being the, there. The only thing that was able to push through that was the love, the, the love, love for them, the love, the to love let that come in that. all its fours. I'm struck by what you said there about, you know, after um, 
Gornia's diagnosis, how do I give her the best life she can possibly have? You know, how do we make every moment matter? Sheila Boland, uh, another bereaved mum who was on the podcast a few episodes ago, says this as well, you know, rather than elongating her little Ushian's life with more chemotherapy, she chose to focus on what can we do? Yes, yes. And maybe that's where you're taking back the power then, isn't it? That's right. Absolutely. How do we make today amazing? How do we make right. today count? That's right. You know, that, did you I, have a sense of that, of how do we take the power back from this illness and live today? Or, you know, even Dara or Doi yes. choosing when yes. he was to die. Yes, yes. It's like he it was incredibly powerful. took his I mean, the courage and bravery of that. Of a 19-year-old. Yes. You know. And the three of them had that very strong bravery and courage. Yeah. And as I think I mentioned it in a few interviews on radio, uh, I think that came about through their the looseness of the way that they lived, the creativity and the space that they were allowed. I didn't, I suppose, as you're asking there, sit down again, consciously and think it out how I would take back the power I think it was something that was that evolved right through their childhoods that they had access to everything their friends were there whatever way they wanted their home to be if it was a kitchen for a movie uh, it was a kitchen and mother like would come back and see everything <laughs> changed and it's like oh what, what what's happening here and it's like oh mom I just set this up and I'm like I walk away and I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's okay. So I think uh, how I could uh, put that, articulate that would be that they um, they just lived very uh, loose lives in the sense that whatever they felt like doing, they did. They were musical. They were creative. They were uh, they were good in school, uh, which was great. I mean, they were, they were very lively in their intelligence. And what they did when they came home like they did their homework but they also had their own creative lives which they they took because they were allowed to take it they were allowed to to say i want this and i'm having it um i allowed them this this spacious spaciousness and uh they felt they always felt that they could do what they what they needed to do so they built themselves up in that way and i think it's through that they found an inner resource they were never um imposed upon and there were never any rule like major rules obviously you have to have the basic rules but no major rules came into it with me and them it was like yeah you're creative off you go and just you know play in the world have a good time and and they did that they wrote their songs they uh played in their bands they uh they you know they were involved in drama they were involved in all of this they played football they they went you know to movies and with their friends they skated around the house they broke a window you know football. <laughs> they did all the stuff but they did their own innate creative uh, uh, answering they answered to their own creative soul and they were allowed to and i was aware that that, that they were being allowed. i was just aware that they that that they were being allowed this because i suppose it was an open door policy so I knew that they were really, really happy. And so when summer came and the holidays came, we just headed off to the country, Tourist Common, right down to the west of Ireland. And they had the cattle, the bog, the hay. They saw cows calving. You know, they saw life as it was. They were out on their bicycles. They saw the beautiful sunsets. They made friends with their country uh, fellows. 
down there and they had their friends in Dublin. Then they brought their friends down because we organised, uh, you know, to bring the friends down so that they were that they were still able to experience the country life and have their friends to say, mm-hmm. you are joining in with me in this and this is brilliant. And I remember when they got older, I used to get a boat on the Shannon and fill it up with their friends and wow. they had wonderful <laughs> nights there. Oh my God. We also, uh, Dara's last trip to Roscommon was to Loch Lean. It's a wooded area. We got a house right in the middle of the wood. I got a house right in the middle of the wood. And they brought all their guitars and they just had an absolute ball. And you could hear their laughter for miles. And there wasn't a sound. It was just stars in the sky and a moon looking down. It was just so bloody fabulous. And I was aware at some stage when all of this was going on. As I said, it wasn't a conscious decision. It's just we rolled with this. It's like a snowball. It just kept on rolling around and gathering stone, gathering moss. And they were becoming so enriched and so full of the world. And Fergal was into history and, you know, he was bringing down his books and whatever. And the Dooley's a beautiful family at home out there in the fields, you know, uh, playing shop, you know, in the grasses and selling things and being green and digging potatoes and all of that kind of thing. All of that was experienced with their granny and grandmother. Uh, Mary and Paddy down in uh, Fairymount and then down in Limerick they had another set of grandparents and they had a shop and they had great time down there and the neighbours down there in Drumconnor County Limerick loved them they were across the road on this wide street in Drumconnor and they were adored by by Aidan's um, family's neighbours by the Keys neighbours who were called O'Shea's and they got beautiful presents you know you go down at Easter Christmas whatever and uh, they had great times down there and great memories of Drumconnor as well. So these were two places in the world where they spent all their their time and uh, where their friends were incorporated as well, particularly mm-hmm. in the West, down in Park Eel. There's such a sense of belonging, not only to the, to, to Limerick and Roscommon and yes. Bray, yes. but belonging to the world. Belonging to the world, and that brought them right out into the world. They were very mm-hmm. interested, you know, in politics as well, and always knew what was happening in the world um Fergal went on to be an actor uh, my 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 middle lad who lived lived till a year ago he went and he he uh, performed in several and that's plays and he would have gone on i think in that vein because there was a great hope that he might live and survive but they had a very resistant bacteria Granny Fergal and Darren Granny got the bacteria in Temple Street many years ago and it was very resistant and with that bacteria the three of them eventually got it and it turned out that you couldn't have transplanted that bacteria but he was going to have a transplant anyway he was very determined fertile he was very uh, you know he, he he lived to live and he he was very, what would you call it? Um, like he did physio two or three times a day. He was on nebulizers. He took oral antibiotics. He took other uh, d- different vitamins and stuff like that to help him. Anything that could help uh, him, he did. His home management was was amazing. Uh, and he was put on a list for transplant, even though it may not have worked. Because he was... 
he's his work was was the best in Ireland. You know, one of the consultants said that of all the people he'd ever come across with CF, Fergal would have hit the high the higher notes. He threw everything at it. He threw everything at it. He was like it was like he was like a soldier almost. Um but he lost the, the battle and that's that's so very heartbreaking because it was the kind of bacteria that was in his lungs. It wasn't that he, he looked after his lungs so so well, but yet the bacteria just give more and more and more it's just the powerlessness uh, of the it. Powerlessness again. of it. Yeah. And and he, he had to repeat all of this every day, so many times every day. And he, he was able to do it. He was so strong and willful and yet, you know, he lost the battle, but not through his own. It was nothing to do with, with his own failure in it. He was an absolute success, but he lost the battle because the bacteria I really hear that. And yeah. uh, the antibiotics weren't there. Yeah. So so that's that's heartbreaking. Um, and to live on after Fergal has gone, me and Fergal were very, very close. He had become an adult. And uh, he, he told me one day in the kitchen, you know, Mum, there's a there's a good possibility I will die and I don't want you to have to go through what I've watched you go through twice before. To have to go through this a third time is too much. And uh, I sat at the table and he he was standing. We used to have these really serious, heartbreaking, pertinent conversations. We had them quite often because Fergal said things the way they were. And I just remember the rain outside, and Fergal always liked the rain. And I just remember one evening it was darkening, and I was sitting at the table, and he came. He came into the room, and he started to talk, and I knew this was coming up. I could feel it in in, in the air between us. And when he told me, you know, it's not looking good for me, I I knew myself it wasn't, but to be able to actually have that courage to say it to your mother. And hear yourself saying that I, I might die, you know, I might I might be gone from here. You might be on your own. And he like was like you said, there was an undercurrent there. Was it helpful then that he named it? That's right. It was helpful. Yeah. And he did that. He did that for me primarily because mm. he loved me so much and he didn't want to leave and he didn't want me to have to pick up those awful pieces that he saw me picking up before. And he had seen. He had witnessed because he was third and he was the one that was left and he had grown up and he was an adult very mature beautiful selfless young lad who had an amazing relationship with his friends and they loved him to bits and uh, who did a lot even without telling anyone he suffered a lot without even sharing it with his friends because he didn't want to upset them because he was sparing them he was so selfless and uh you know, when he said that to me, I looked back at him. His eyes were just searing into me. And I said to him, it's okay, Farrell, I hear you. Um, I, uh, it's okay. I I will be able to go on. I, I'm strong. I remember saying to him, I'm very strong, Farrell, and I have really good friends and family. And I will get through it. And I, re- I realised that, that. that I was giving him permission to to die. Yeah. And he was accepting my permission. It was so respectful and so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I'll never forget it when I live. Yeah. It'll be the last thing I'll think of when I'm closing my eyes. 
how beautiful Lee Strawley was and how respectful to me and how lovely he was and how grateful he was for his life. And yet he was commentating on that mm. life and bringing it to an end through his articulation and through his eyes looking at me. And I, I looked at him and he looked at me and he was leaning on the on the, on the kitchen worktop because I knew he was finding it hard to get the words out. And he was almost wriggling his body to get each word out. But he got the words out. And he wanted my eyes. He wanted my eyes to look at his. And I was looking out towards the front door. Because I was looking out that direction. Towards the hallway. The middle door was open. And he was to my right. So I looked over at him. And his eyes were looking at me. Because he'd been looking at the side of my head. Then I fell on his eyes. Both her eyes seared into one another. That moment of knowing. That moment of knowing. Yeah. That, that moment. The, he was so courageous to tell me the struggle to try and get that out. And I, I could hear, I heard him. And I looked at him. And I, I stayed sitting. I didn't run to him either to hug him even though I'd hug him quite a bit. I just sat there and let it sit, let it fall between us. Let it, let it sit almost in the air, what he'd said, what I'd said, and for, for a few moments. That, those words sat between us and it rained outside and it was kind of gloomy and dark. And ironically, Fergal loved the rain. And always when the rain comes, and I hear it on the roof. I, I think, I think he's close. That's where you find him. And that's where I found him that day. That's, and in some way, we must have muttered a few more words after that. I can't remember. I turned my head and my legs were kind of stretched out in front of me, one on top of the other, straight out in front of me. And I was facing him. I almost felt like it was a play. That's another just, I suppose, section of it that I could see in my own mm. because I used to think of making Like how a, surreal. Making a sitting play. Sitting in the kitchen. That's right. Telling my son, That's you right. can die, I'll you be okay. You can die and it's okay. And, yeah. 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 And so, I, I, I saw it through different eyes as well. Another creative space that, Somebody was watching us, almost, the world. You were watching you. I was watching us. He was watching us. We were watching us. But that some other world was watching us. Maybe mm. it was channeled from another world. Maybe Gwanya was watching us and Dara. Because now they were both gone. And we were in this empty house that was short of the empty house I spoke of. It wasn't that much short of it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the windows rattling. Because both of us were at bay. And there were times, for let's say, I feel at bay. We were like two shipwrecks in a house that was making all these housey noises that houses make when they talk back to you through walls. And you don't hear them when it's full of voices. You don't hear yeah. them when it's full of voices. And you now hear a clock ticking. Yeah. And you hear these noises. And so Fergal was as much aware of it as I was maybe even more, of this shipwreck, these two wrecks. And we were like uh, 
there alone, almost trying to get a flint going to light a fire. It's like we were somewhere in the middle of the sea on on a, an island. And we were islanded, the two of us. And in some way he felt he had similar feelings to myself. Feelings of absolute and utter, well, shit on this. We've been left here. Why were we left? Why are these two people, us, here, floundering about on this island? And the rest, the rest of them are gone. Do you think there was he that was anger with God? There was that anger with God, the mm. higher authority, uh, whoever that is, that's in charge. There was an anger with the world, the anger, an anger with the air, the planet. Uh, within each other that we could concur with invisibly and silently because he felt the same as I did without even having to articulate it we, we, we knew each other mm. we, and so it was this great connection that we had that was so disturbing and devastating when Fargal got respiratory failure and that weekend, the one person who was on your the frequency. one person that was on my ground, on my yeah. path, on my ridge, mm. was now snatched away. And I was ready to go then. Mm. And I was in shock for a while. And I began to come out of shock. And. When did he die after that conversation? Was it soon after? Let's say it could have been maybe um, six months. And I thought he had longer. He went in with, with an infection on top of infection on top of infection. Mm. Because that's what CF is. It's a deep hole full of gunge that just fills up. You cough it all out and then it fills up again. You cough it all out and then it fills up again. There's a repetition, a repetition, a repetition. And with that, Fergal was like, he was like the Irish army. He was, he had, he did it in military fashion to empty out that pond. Mm. But that pond was always refilled. That was so bloody unfair. Mm. And so when he died, he, yeah, he was, he was in for a few weeks and then he got respiratory failure one night. And he was brought to ICU. And the last thing he said before he went to ICU is, I'm not afraid anymore. Because Fergal read avidly. Anti de Mello. Mm. He read all the philosophers. He tried to put this together and wonder how he was going to do it, how he was going to die, how he was going to overcome that terror of fear. He put a huge amount into it. And uh, he he has a, a line that is on my wall. It was always on his door. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Question mark. And he lived by that. That's his... Uh, that's his little Bible, his hymn. His legacy. His legacy. It's on his door. It's downstairs. People have given it to me as well, my niece. 
uh, it's across my wall in the kitchen. And that's what Farrell wants to say to the world. You know, fear. Because he spent a long time dealing with fear. And fear pushed him to the wall. But he, he won. And the last thing he said was... The I'm last thing he said was he was being brought up on the stretcher up or in the bed was, I'm not afraid anymore. You know, because he, 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 I think he realised that this could be it. Now, he was in ICU for a week and they sedated him. But they brought him back, you know, up from sedation. So we were able to talk and he was able to say a few things. The first thing he wanted to know was, he was so clever and so bright. What is the situation with my... Uh, well, I still... Because he was waiting for an organ. You know, is there any chance? He still wanted life. He was still fighting. Like like he was fighting on the front on the front line, you know he wanted uh, the organ he wanted to to live, and his a girlfriend uh, was uh, getting the results for a PhD and she got the results to say she she had it, she she got her PhD and she was able to say that to him, and was loving him loving him loving him I was loving him into his eyes, and it was so lovely to to be able to get that chance you know the crying and the loving and the telling him how much you loved him. And to get this chance for a few minutes that we're bringing him back because they'll sedate him back down again. Yeah. And so there was this coming back and going down, come back and going down throughout that week. And there were different things they tried. And um, Did he know he was going to die? Well, he, he asked to... He said, I'm dying at one point to the nurse in the middle of the night. I wasn't there. And he said, I'm... I'm uh, I think I think I want to die. You know, when he woke up first, because it was such a, a huge catastrophe, where he found himself. Um, and then, the nurse, the ICU nurse, was very specialised, and she she brought him around, and she said, "No, no, Fergal, it's, it's you're not at that stage yet." He said, "I'm where am I? Am I nearly there?" And she said, "You're not there yet. You're quite a bit from there, in fact." So through her counsel to him, he was able to, you know. He was like a computer. You could see his eyes. Yeah, he was getting it all in. And then he asked his questions. And then we had that, that time. Beautiful time. Living in his eye. In his eyes. Mm. And in, in his invisible, you know, talk. That lovely love that was coming out through him. And, you know, the tears in his eyes. And one trying to keep the tears back in one's eye. That he wouldn't, you know. It's not that he, he, he understood all that. But just... Uh, not to be a bundle of crying either, but um, there there were hours spent like that, uh, and then then they would bring him back down again because maybe his stats were showing you know that this was increasing his heart rate or whatever and his his um, to make his rest his resps yeah. yeah so over a week but then they did a they put a a, a thing in his throat it's called a think the word right this second but it's where you breathe through your throat so they tried that a trachea tra- yeah. they tried that and um, he had that for a day or two but uh, as he was they were trying to take him off that that they'd be able to take that out but in fact what happened was and I knew it was happening I could see that his everything was raising saturations and all of that because I could read them on the monitor and then they took more and more bloods and by the bloods they can see, you know, what the bacteria is doing. And the bacteria began to take over. 
So uh, then they, I knew he was, he was going. But the one he asked me, he said, Mum, make sure that I have an easy death. He said that to me. It, this is way before. I don't want to have a death because Dara's was harder because Dara was out on a ward. Father was in ICU and he said, I, d I don't want to die like Dara did because Dara called them off and they, they put him down, you know, with the with the, uh, the heavy drugs. But for Fergal, he was already down. So it was easier. For, it's like an orchestra. You can bring him up, bring him down. Yeah. So if you get my drift. And so uh, I was like the sentry. I was like, I'm here for my son. Now, he knew that I would direct them, even though they, they were hugely uh, specialist. And nurses were, the nurses were beautiful. They were angels. And I, I said, you know, make sure that he, there's plenty there. And she said, Kathleen, you don't even have to open your mouth. And they all fell in love with Fergal. They were all crying there the day he died. They said, there was something about this guy. He was so incredibly intuitive when he'd come back to them, making it easy for them. Because Fergal used to always say, if you needed a nurse, and mum, don't call the nurses, they have too much to do. He he was, you know, he was connecting with them all of the time. And uh, the consultant came in and he started to cry after Fergal died. And he said, you know, he said, I thought we were going to, I thought we had him. I thought we were going to pull him back. And he said, you know, I'm so sorry. And he started to cry. He said, he was some amazing guy. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it all went into overdrive. It went into the fast lane then. And people and all his friends were coming in. One guy just broke down crying. He was so bad he had to be taken out. One of his friends kept saying, Virgil, don't leave me, don't leave me. Because their friends were like, their friends found them to be their builders. It's like the master builder. Dara's friends said that Dara built them. And Virgil's friends, like, they were like, they got such power back from them, such strength from them and they taught them so much they were they were my teachers they were their friends teachers and it was just inhumane to think that they wouldn't be there any longer on this earth they're around but uh it was just it, it was too big of a lesson the lesson got too big but uh yeah the room filled and then then he he breathed his last and the uh when he was going, this, this this calm overtook me and I I was rubbing his face and rubbing his neck. And something about death that now I see, I, I've seen, this is my third time to see it. And, uh, but for him, I knew that he was like, we'll say a mile down. You could, if you wanted to gauge it like that, he's a mile down that way. And it's okay. So I was calm because because he was okay, he he got he got a bit further away, but you know he could probably see us, and in some way there was this channeling of where he was, and it was all different when Fergal was dying to when when Dara died, and he was sitting up and his eyes were looking like the eaglet, and he saw the the trees, and for Grania, my beautiful Grania, she was fifteen, she'd gone into unconsciousness, and it's like I saw a white bed and her head of curls, and her white, beautiful skin. And I tried to open her eyes. I did that when she died, actually. But when she was in the coffin, I, I stretched open her eyes, which someone might think that's awful. But I saw her eyes again, because when she had gone into unconscious, she went in almost, she went in slyly. 
I didn't see her eyes just before she went in. I missed. So and you didn't have that I moment did, I didn't have her. the moment. And when she was going to have her scan done, uh, they brought her back and she opened her eyes because she had had them closed for a long time. And she mouthed, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think I said that on the Late Late yeah. Show. And her mouthing, that's that was her mouthing I saw. And then her eyes closed. And so I needed to see the eyes just again. Mm-hmm. And I did when she lay like a beautiful Cinderella. She lay on her bed like a beautiful fairy tale, sleeping beauty. I saw those eyes and, and that was gentle and kind and uh she slipped she slipped into it. And so I was there, we were there around her bed and there was something magical, she like that she was the cusp of child to woman. And so it was slightly different to 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 Dara was like many young men of twenty say goodbye. I always think of the song. Like in the battlefield, in the darkness. Yeah. And then for Fergal it was the crowds around and his dark hair, they were beautifully dark and his long dark eyelashes and there was like a tear coming down the side of his eye and those tears are they come with tip and your face gets thinner and mm. you die. That all happened. And it wasn't so frightening. I said, oh, it's thinning. Your face is thinning, my darling, don't beautiful, sweetheart, my love. And I did, and then I heard his last breath. He went. Yeah. Oh, it is brother died. When Dara died, I remember we walked away from the bed. Dara's face was still and white. His hair was dark and his eyelids were closed. They closed them. Two beautiful eyes. Fergal walked with me, his mother, out of the room. And I remember the nurse's station. And he had his arm around me. And I put my hand around his waist. We walked up lightly off the ground through the, the corridor. And he said to me, Mum, I'm here and with you. You'll be okay. And I remember that when he died. The connection that each one of them had to yeah. you. And their concern for you. They knew me very well and I knew them. Gronya saying, I'm sorry, I know this is going to hurt you. Yeah. That's what she meant when she said She I'm knew sorry. I didn't want her yeah. to be going. And Doi saying, You'll find me in the trees. I'll be with you. And then Fergal asking you across the kitchen table, Are you going to be okay? Such utter love. Such utter love and spoken. Spoken. We often love our children and or felt. love our mothers, but we don't say it. Spoken and felt. Spoken and felt. Yeah. All at once. Almost wordless. Mm. A lot of the time. Mm. I hear that like there seems to be such a an unspoken language you had with your children. Yes, there was a lovely unspoken language. It was like a language. frequency or a vibration that yes. you shared. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It didn't have to be spelled out or yeah. 
said even. Yeah. Uh, it was always, you know, unconditional, and which it is between parents and their children, uh, we hope, mostly. But, yeah, it didn't, it didn't have to be. Mm. It was always known. It was always known. It was, I'd call it like a recognition. I could recognise them and they could recognise me. Mm. And I often get an image of of the island being being bereft on an island. And I get that image that the island could have been there between me and Fergal when those things were spoken. But it was an island that always could be reached yeah. by me or by him to each other yeah. in our moments of of terror and and absolute sadness and isolation, you know, and 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 we're entitled to have our islands as human beings, or as individuals, have our own island when we want it, but always to have that island, a reachable island, that if we want our loved one near us, they can certainly swim over. Mm. And and there was something about that I think that was always allowed it's a permission that was always a felt thing that was in our family. It's like a profound level of consciousness yes, that few people touch in their lives. That's right. Yeah. That you almost dwell in much of the time. Because that's what yes. grief does as well. It's it like does. as you said, it gets rid of the nonsense. It pairs us back to it our does. bones and that's our right. Our nervous system, right. you know, it's yeah, like we're it's like right. we're a brain with nerves and what's going on in our system, you know. It's yes, it's sort of um, stark in mm. a sense, stark in its in its reality. But it's important that it's there mm. for when it's needed, so it can be recognised. When all the rest of the world gets in on it, all the rest mm. of living, you know, buffs it out, that it can still be seen through the past. It's like an x-ray in some way. Yeah. What do you ever think yeah. of that now? It's like x-ray in some way. You can see the ribs, but you can look in and see the heart through the excesses of fat or mm. skin and organs around it. It can be found and recognised and it can be reached. And I think like this sort of conversation, Catherine, is so rare, so rare where people will show that they'll they'll show yes. their internal workings. Yes. You know, yes. we all see the external. Yes. We hazard a guess at what's yes. going on inside. Yes. Yes. But for somebody to share so eloquently and so with such vulnerability and such rawness, it doesn't happen. And so for people to hear this, yes, there'll be those who are grieving who will be so grateful to hear this because it's like putting words on yes. my experience where nobody else in the world is doing that. Yes. You know, it's opening those panes of glasses yes. for so many people. Yes. And then there'll be others who who won't be able to bear to listen. Yes. Or fear. your question, is it okay? Yes, fear and terror. And, and I want to ask you, is, is this okay, that this is public and this is yes, it's recorded and it's shared? And yes, it's kind of who I am as a human being. Yeah. It's, it's who I would have been 
had I never had my children and they'd never been sick yeah. and all of these experiences I think I, I would have been like that they're my interiors and exteriors mm. but I think having lived the experience and lived and have had my beautiful children find me to be their mother I'm so I'm so grateful that they did that through that I it has been intensified you know my mm. my hearing and my sight and my senses have been completely you know uh, tested out and you know they're in good fine working order I think because of my beautiful children and, mm. and what they've had to go to go through their lives. Virgo said to you, I'm not scared anymore. Are you scared? Now? Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't think. I'm not. Well, my grief, yes, has scared me. The depth uh, of your grief. The depth of my grief scared me after he died. And yes, I, I didn't want to, to stay here. I wanted to follow. Uh, I went to uh, Pieta House. Yeah. And I had some good sessions there and though I was strong myself and I realise I am strong I wasn't strong enough after he died I felt I, I'm deteriorating here I'm just like crashing but yet the strength of knowing how vulnerable you were yes. and asking for help yes. so yes. you say yes. you weren't strong yes. yet yes. yet yes. You, you, and I have you been. did exactly what you should have done you know I've been in psychotherapy for a while, for for a few years, good few years. Yeah. Uh, be, you know, on the death of Grania, I went in. Uh, when when our marriage uh, ended, uh, I went in. I went in when the ch- when the three children were alive and they were ill. Through all of that, uh, I I found you resourced yourself. I resourced myself, through. and I was very aware. I was resourcing mm. myself, like my um um my self awareness was beside me there telling me Kathleen you need to do this if you don't do it you know and and I found that okay that's again a part of me that I can you know feed into very easily so for somebody listening now who's wondering oh gosh is she okay or will she be okay what would you say to them I'll be okay I I have a feeling that I'm over the worst I think the worst has passed in, in the last sort of Six months were really, really bad. I think I was, uh, in some way, um, at, for the first few weeks, I was in shock, but I could feel the shock lifting. So I was, I was with it all the way, and mm-hmm. I, I was really that was the worst I think I've ever been. Although when Grania died, I Fergal t- told me then that I used to frighten him. I was so bad, you know, and he used to say, "If you're okay, Mum, I'll be okay." He'd say. I, at her funeral he said that to me I'll never forget it in the church if you're okay if you're okay I'm okay and I said I'm okay but the thing is you have to look after your your, your children's grief you sometimes put your own up on the high shelf I hardly had time between Grania there was 10 years between Grania dying and, and Dara dying but in those 10 years there was hospital sickness and so it's like falling with the cross almost you know Jesus falls the first time he gets up second i i can i i can kind of feel as if there's a cross on that and i had to get up and go down and get up and go down and each time keep going and through that now i could say that 
the grief is in its full entirety and the three griefs were individual griefs. And I would say, and I remember my friend saying to me, she reminded me, when Grania died, she said, she said, Kathleen, you said to me, I need to grieve Grania because her grief is so precious. It's like there never will be another grief for Grania. And it was akin to somebody having a new baby and saying, well, these are the infant weeks. There never will be a week, two weeks, yeah. three weeks. You'll never have those infant moments. It was a little bit like that. I was aware that I needed to sit down and that's what I did. I'd go for a walk on the Greystones uh, walk. I'd pick flowers. I'd go to Grania's grave. I'd come home and then I'd get her picture and put it on the table and I'd light a candle which illuminated her face and I pulled in a chair and I got a pen and I got I got a paper and I began to write but my heart just to start pounding because I knew I was going to fall apart and the fear of falling apart and you've just lit a candle and you're like what am I doing here and do I need to run out the back door and run away from this I felt like doing it but I galvanised myself to the chair and I start writing and then I burst open I'd, I'd just bawl it would come from such deep parts sometimes I'd have to lie on the floor I remember lying on the floor but I'd write and a lot of the writing was blotched and I'd write and I'd, I'd get into a fit of crying and then I'd get my breath back and I'd write more I'd look into her eyes and the writing would come and that's how I grieved I grieved for Grania like that for Dara like that and for Fergal I began to write letters to Grania letters to Fergal letters to letters to Dara and now letters to Fergal but I got so almost ill during the grief for Fergal that I had to stop writing because the grief was actually it was had, too active it was too active too active I have yeah. neurosarcoidosis I have a shunt in my head so I had two hospital admissions I got a slight stroke after Right. Fargal died and that was through the neurosarcoidosis yeah. it's inflammation of the brain and so uh, I had to sort of pull back almost yeah because dose your grief is what we'd say is that what you say yeah like the, the importance of allowing yourself to grieve yes. but then also allowing yourself to have a break absolutely you know yeah. I love that image of you grieving on the floor Kathleen there's something about there's nowhere else to fall yeah, yeah you, you can't go on the floor there's nowhere else for me to fall yeah. Yeah. And the, you're being held by the earth, you know. Yeah, right. I'd sometimes say to people, go to the garden, you know, yes. lie in the grass, feel the feel the earth the holding earth you. you, because it's like you said there when you when you talked about Gronya's death, just how the ground was pulled away from under your feet. Yes, it's yes. like we have to find our ground again. Yeah, we have. We have to find our center again. Yes. Brene Brown is that lovely expression strong back soft front wild heart and I love it because it's like it's like having that spine that's holding you up that's right let it yet allowing yourself to be soft, soft. and grieve Ex yes you know so yes. it's like you're supporting yourself and you're grieving yes. and there's space for a little craziness uh, in, also you yes know. <laughs> it's like a cocktail of bodily structure or something like that it's like yeah these are all different parts of you. Yeah. And it's the self-awareness as well to remember them. Remember the back is hard and strong. And, and grief is so physical, you know. The belly is This is something that I've written about. Grief is so physical. It's so visceral. It's so in the body. Yes. 
we can't support it with words alone. No, absolutely you know, not. Especially with a, a prefrontal cortex that's not yes. working when we're in deep grief. Our brains don't work absolutely. the way they do. We need to find better ways of supporting our grief. You know, in the physicality of it. That's right. So meet it with another body. Yes. Another body, literally, physically yes. with yes. you yes. on the ground. Yes. You know, it's wow. where yes, real exactly. grief support Let is. Let there be an know. exchange of body yeah. bodies or ground or whatever. So you don't feel alone. You, you yeah. can feel that. Yeah. You can feel the cement. You can just being held. Yeah, just being held. You see that yes. in the news videos when a child has died in some tragedy in, in a war zone. And they intuitively meet each other on the ground with their bodies. Yes. Whereas, yes. you know, we whisper these ridiculous platitudes yeah. of words that it's, don't it's even like, begin to touch they don't, where grief and, is. You know, all the different steps of grief. Sometimes you're like, oh, no, do right. I have to read all this again? We all know that's because that, that doesn't translate yeah. at all. No. You, it, it has to be bodily, as you say, visceral. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it could be water and the swimming and all of those things lying lying in a field with your legs out and your arms stretched. Yeah. Feeling the organics underneath you and looking up as a, at an empty sky. Because to me, grief was also, while it was contriving me, I felt I was being limited by grief. I was in some way boxed. But in, in another way, I was released into this expansive world where there was too much space in fact and I didn't know what to do with the space so it's quite a complex thing grief it can be too big it can be too small but as you said somewhere in the middle there's a paradox there's there, a paradox there but I think about. there's also you know when our child dies or someone we love dies or something monumental happens in our life our world the bottom falls out of our world you know and there's some comfort to be had and sitting back into the vastness of the universe. Yes. And feel feeling the universe hold. Yes, yes, yes. You know, like yes. you say, the, the stars, the sky. That's the, right, that's right. You know, the yes. planet. It's like yeah. when we're zooming yeah. in and looking yes. at the planet and our experience in the grand scheme of everything. Yes. There can exactly. be some comfort there. I, I remember writing, uh, as I do, I felt I was cycling on the edge of the world. Uh, that was something that gave me uh, some sort of a gauge as to where I was. But I was very little on this. It was almost like a penny farthing bike <laughs> because it was a very slim bike. I was slim and I was just navigating this this line of the earth. And I wasn't in it. I wasn't out, I was outside. I wasn't in it or I wasn't outside it. But I was on this line. It was like it had a sort of tightrope quality, but it was very narrow. And it wanted to uh, just blitz itself out. I wanted to blitz myself. I wanted to obliterate myself. Mm -hmm. I was in the way of this big world. That's another way of looking at it. I don't know whether anybody else out there listening uh, could concur with that. It's like I was useless. I was now, um, I had no job. I was in some way no use to the world or anybody in it anymore because I was alone and um, I was I was no good and that's uh, fed into a little bit of self-hatred this fire that goes up through you where you start to blame yourself for everything 
my child is dead, uh, I am a failure, uh, and in some way that began to make sense to me, that if your child dies, it doesn't matter how it happens, if you could have saved them or you couldn't, or if you couldn't have saved them, still it can't, the end result can be that you feel, I am that failure, because my child died. It doesn't have to be rational, it doesn't have to make any sense. You know, that's the biggest thing in the world that can happen to you. Your biggest love you've lost, you carried that child and you nursed and you loved, you invested, and now your child has, has died. Who's who's at fault here? One can bring it in on oneself, and so mm-hmm. that's what I was, what I spent some time doing as well. Not for long, but uh, all of these things, they churn through you. The it's, part it of has the to all pass through oh, you. To, it has you to almost pass can't through. escape it. You can't escape yeah. it. No, and you, have you to said you were angry, Kathleen. Talk to me about Hugely that. Angry. What do you do with your anger? Um. I write, mm. I scream, uh, I, I, if you were to look at my worktop, you'll see Nick's uh, knife, Nick's in it. I've got a knife and I've nicked the, the wood. I, I'm quite aware that I'm doing it. Yeah. In some way, it's testament to my anger. Because I can go back and look at it and say, oh, I did that. And kind of like have a laugh at myself and say, yeah, like that, I did that. That's lovely. I've left a little bit of creativity here. You know, this is my piece of But it's work. so necessary as well. It's so it? necessary. It's so necessary to so put like, it somewhere, to do uh, something with it. Because like, otherwise you know, it's inside you, eating you up. Yeah. Toxic. Yeah. You know? It's like, fuck the wood. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The wood can take language it. On this now. The wood can take the, it. The wood can take it. Anything can, the floor can take it. The, the wherever you're screaming from can take yeah. unless there are other ears in your wake but yeah. you know scream I have screamed and screamed uh, I remember the night of Fergus' uh, birthday from the 22nd of uh, November he died uh, on the 2nd of December his birthday uh, after that which was just gone the 22nd of November mm. I, I keened there and I didn't know I was going to Keen and um, describe Keening, Kathleen, for anyone listening. Well, I was told I was Keening by my niece, but I knew that there was a funny sound leaving my body. I had brought in a house full of people, fed them, and they were all lovely people. There was a lovely atmosphere in the room, and some of Fergus' friends had come, and some of Dara's friends, and they brought uh, guitars, and uh, they were. They were going to play music after we'd finished eating. So I had been getting ready for this and cleaning up the house and getting everything cooked. And then we all sat down and, yeah, I was sitting between the doors of the kitchen, the sitting room, and the music started. And they started playing Thin Lizzy. And they were playing Paul, Paul, um, Diamonds on the Soles of Your Shoes by Paul, um, his name I know exactly. Fargan loved him um, and anyway South African yes yeah, yeah. Um, I, I began to cry Paul Simon I was really upset I couldn't take anymore it's like I couldn't take anymore so I started crying very loudly very I just started crying but 
I knew I'd gone into some other space. It's like I could hear myself and I was like, is that me? And then I began to talk and say things like, I want them back, please bring them back. And there were photographs of all the children around the sitting room. And then the boys stopped playing. They looked down at the ground very respectfully. And somebody said, yeah, don't let them play anymore. And then I put my hand up and I said, tell them, tell them to play, to keep playing. So they did. They, they played more. They, they began to play something different. But I could hear this, ah, this loud, loud noise, like an accordion or something coming out. Ah, and I couldn't stop it. And uh, I could see people looking at me across the room from the other end. The music was, was, had started to play again. But all the women who were at the kitchen sink and helping me, they were all coming over, rubbing my shoulders, rubbing my head, my neck. And they were getting cold cloths, but putting it to my forehead. Somebody got me water and I was just, but I was saying things and I knew it was, I knew I had kind of gone on to some other place. I knew I was slightly out of it. Yeah. And I was saying just, I want them back. Please bring them back. Where are they now? Please bring me back my children. I love them. And then they were, uh, at a certain point, I had got myself into a right state and it was like a guttural, trying to get my breath. Mm. And uh, yet this raspy sound was coming out. And uh, it, I began to, to recover. And they got me some whiskey. I remember it on my tongue. And I recovered. And my, my niece came over and she said, you know, Aunt Kathleen, you, you know that you were keeny. And I said, Grace. Yeah, I, I know. I know something happened. Something very different happened to me. I was at another. I was at another mm. plane, and I couldn't stop it. It was like your body's response. I, I had to, to go grief. through. Yeah, I had yeah. to go through a few different stages. And I think mothers keen all over the world, and it's culturally yeah. accepted. Yes, we've just kind of lost we've it. Lost here. that. We talk. From stay strong. Yeah, it's ridiculous. They Keep stay it strong. All in. Zip up. Yeah. She did very well, you know. Oh, yes, yes. Whereas yes. we need this, we need these to let spaces. Go. We need to let go and be vulnerable and fall Absolutely. apart and let our our bodies grieve. Our bodies Absolutely. need to grieve without our heads coming in with what's yes. right and what isn't right. Yes, it, it kind you know? of, in some ways, reminds me of dancing at Lunas in the play when the three very conservative or four was it sisters who lived in Donegal. Uh, they were kind of, you know, buttoned to where they were in, the, in life and they weren't allowed to express that one evening I think when the radio was on they all began to to dance and somebody was baking and threw the flower up in the air and in the end they all got their aprons and they started throwing flour and that's yeah. what keening is yeah. but in some way they were laughing and dancing but you know sorrow and just expression of what's it's there, so close right? i mean yeah crying and laughing is yeah. the same thing effectively yeah. aren't they joy yeah. and sadness unbuttoning unbuttoning, unbuttoning of our cultural of our conditioning conditioning yeah and so uh i recovered and afterwards i felt relieved i i didn't know why it had all happened and i was hoping that i had been okay but of course i was okay um, there was a beautiful reverence with the young people playing. They continued to play and then it was like 
they, they had witnessed this as well, which was really natural, mm-hmm. that I was in this state and they could see it. I suppose it was a good thing, exposure. To, to let that be seen. There's something about thing. it. But I had nothing to do with yeah. it because it just happened. But That we can go to the bottom of our souls. That's right. That's express right. it and then be okay. Yes. We need, we're so scared. We're so, Everyone so that comes afraid. here is like, I'm so scared to let go because I'm yes. afraid there'll be no end. So to witness and go to the depths and come and, back. And not die. And it's not like, die. I am actually still here after yeah. this. It's like Fergal's, you know, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Well, that happened because I wasn't consciously doing it. I think I just got upset and then I heard the noise and then I, I did eventually recover. But to rewind the tape earlier that day, at about two o'clock, I was running around with hoovers and food and there was all kinds of preparations going on. But I got this idea, I'd like to read a piece for Fergal's birthday. Uh, but of course I didn't because it was too manic. There were too many people, it was too loud. You know, the volume and all of that of people's voices. So it wasn't that kind of a, a gig, if you like. So what I did was I ran upstairs and I pulled out boxes from under my bed that were full of diaries and letters and stuff. And I opened up a diary going back to 1995. Now, this is at... But two o'clock that day I think it was when I had a ton of things to do and I pulled on the diary was 1995 and I had been to the Aran Islands with my three children who were young at the time and Aidan who I was married to at the time and I opened a page in my diary and I sat down like a child with my two legs out on the floor and I opened up the diary and I nearly had to get you know they're, they're all in a big box under my bed and I read the entry that day was we here we are in on Inishmore and we'd gone to we were going around on bicycles on Inishmore and uh, we uh, we were up to an Angus and it was fabulous and we were cycling back to our B&B and then that night we were going to see two Irish plays there were two short plays one was by O'Casey it was Riders to the Sea and I can't remember the other one but I was reading what I'd written in this is now earlier that day and I I was talking about the play plays and how good they were, they were both us Gaelga, my children went to Gaelga and uh, I was asking the kids on the way home, we were walking home in the sun, in the moonlight it was lovely, down the roads of Inishmore, it was really nice and Grani was saying that she liked one of the plays and Fargal preferred Riders to the Sea which is the one I preferred. We were just talking about the plays and then then I put in a line of commentary it was like a line pertaining to myself. I said, as I was talking about Gráinne, what she thought of the other play and what Fergal thought of Riders to the Sea. I said, while I was looking at the play Riders to the Sea, I was looking at the woman who was kneading the bread and she was keening and she was looking out to sea and she was keening for her three lost sons that had been drowned in a fishing, in a, in a drowning accident. Do you know what I wrote down? I felt I was her. Wow. Now, then I, I just wrote, that was my bit of personal commentary. Then I finished that um, entry. And then I put back the book and I went downstairs and then later, this happened. And apparently I was keening. I felt a noise and my niece had told me I was keening and it was only the next day that the two of them connected I thought 
oh my god Kathleen all those years ago like you all those years ago you went up yeah and you found 1995 mm. and you could have picked any day you'd read your entry yeah and then that happened that night yeah. in my own house on Farley's yeah. birthday on the 22nd of uh, November uh, 2019 so I began to think is there some connection in the world is everything fitting in here is to everything? some bigger plan yeah. And is there a certain amount of channeling going oh, on? Yeah. And I began to think about the bigger picture of life. Yeah. And I thought that was very powerful. Yeah. I wasn't going to mention it here, but Yeah. It is, and it's you know, finding meaning in your children's death can yes. be almost impossible, can't yes. it? It's, the brutality. It's, the brutality. Of it's impossible to go to that level of finding. Yeah. There's a lot of digging to be done yeah. to get to that level. Yeah. If one ever will before yeah. one dies. Yeah, not but everyone certainly. gets there and yes. and that's okay. It's so absolutely fine. so personal. Kathleen, going back to what you said earlier, um, you know, I'm thinking that the cottage is filled with the music and the parties yes. and yes. the trips out and down in Limerick and up to Roscommon yes. and how you you said you unconsciously yes. provided them with a magnificent life, essentially. You know, every opportunity yes. uh-huh. you opened your heart and the doors and their yes. friends were in and they went to plays and they read and yes. they created yes. and yes. you saw the stars and, you yes. know, yes. idyllic, it sounds it's idyllic. It's lovely to hear you tell you know, me. Looking at the cows being born, it's just like, yes, I, know. I, I have this urge of, oh my God, I want to get my children yes, from school yes. and go up the mountains yes, and I know, I know. do something fucking important, I know, I know, you know? I know, I know, I know, I know. But, you know, you said you did this unconsciously, yes. you know, and now in grief, yes. do you, like, sometimes I think it's so profound and and we are on that edge and like you said, you know, cycling around this edge yes. of the world in between yes. life and the afterlife and where yes. your children are, where you are. I think, and this is just me, but yes. we almost have to consciously decide where we're going to orientate towards. Mm. You know, am I going to survive? Yes. Or am I going to drown? You know, in this, yes. you know, at a certain point, we have to take the wheel from yes, grief yes. and go I'm driving now yes 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 you know and, and grief yes. can be part of that yes. journey but That's we right. are driving it you know it's like in the early days we're often just in acute grief and then we've little moments away from it and then we say and I've said this before we need to grieve we need to move forward we need to grieve we need to have a break we need to grieve we need to cook the dinner yes. and we it's like this oscillation between the two initially is out of our hands but then at a certain point it's like we're grabbing whatever is oscillating us and we're starting to say now I'll grieve now I'm not going to grieve now I need to focus on this task have you had a sense of what you want to orient towards in these coming months well and years to answer that is to say that at no point was I, 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 I had a certain amount of awareness. So I had awareness, but I wasn't, you know, charting it, mapping it, planning it. And now I'm going through my grief in the same way. It's uncharted grief. It's sort of landing me here 
it's like I'm, I'm going down the road I'm taking a turn that way I'm going back onto it again and that's the way I'm doing it it's, it's not a, a, a straight line and I'm not making any major plans because what I feel is I feel a trust within myself that it's going to get me there yeah. because up to now pre-grief or well there wasn't a pre-grief time in the sense that it was uh, always changing in the lives that we led me and my, my children I feel now that I, I can let it almost write itself like it did those words I will let it run its course without too much interference though I am keeping my eye on the ball if that makes any sense mm-hmm. I'm I'm aware and, of it, and you have chosen to orientate yourself yes. towards life. I I, I have. Yeah. Right now, I'm alive, and thank God for that. I'm still living. I'm still here, hmm. and I'm very grateful for that. And I'll just keep going. As I am, and hope you know, hope for the best. I'm trusted. I think rather than hope, I don't hope anymore. Either. That's the wrong word. It would be to trust it. It's trusting Trusting the road, your process. Trusting my process. Trusting the road ahead. Mm-hmm. Knowing myself well enough to hang on to that trust. I think there was a time for a while that I didn't. And that was at the early stages when I was absolutely in smoke. I was in an absolute mm-hmm. earthquake. And so I was lucky. I was able to navigate through that with support. And now I feel... But there are some still some really bad days. For instance, yesterday wasn't a good day. Mm. But I cried a lot yesterday. And I think once one is aware, once they have that self-awareness of where they are, whether they're tilting this way or that way, it's like in a plane, you know, you're 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 what you're or, you're orienting yourself. You're orienteering yourself around the place. Mm. And once you have that eye slightly, but you're still allowing yourself you're not being too hard on yourself. You're not imposing any rules on yourself. You're not saying, I have to do this, or at a certain time I'm going to take the bull by the horns. No, that's too that's too much imposition in my in my world. I want more an easy, kind of softer ride, mm. a hammock that's going to bring me. A hammock that's kind of last night I was or yesterday I was writing about that I was in somewhere underground. I felt that the letter had been the the all these shadowy figures that were beginning to look in, and I almost tomb liked myself. I I had myself in a tomb, uh, but it wasn't a very frightening black dark tomb. It was a tomb with a loose lid, and I was like, yes, I'm unlidded, and I I can see I can see out from these stone windows, and I I see shiverings of hands, and they're all coming my way. It's like. They're kind of easing me out. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, hello, I'm, I'm here. So it's a gentle sort of transition. I'm never going to be hard on myself and say, though I can be at times, you know, stand there and write, go on, sit and write. I haven't been doing much writing at all in the last few months. Did this, what, is that what they call it? Nothing, but yesterday I was writing a bit and I felt good. So I'm going to go, try and go back to that. Mm. So I'm trying to be the hard kind of, you have to do this now and be disciplined, but yet cushion it. So it's the paradox, as you said, the overlap and try and get that right, that there isn't too much pressure. There's a lot of time in the world. The world is full of time. Mm. And I'm not so good at times for taking that time out. I'm a little bit hard on myself. 
So I'm not easy on myself, but I still have an eye. I still have an eye through the cockpit. I can kind of see yeah. which way this is flying. Is it is it sloping, you know? Is it going so allowing the, the process to happen yeah. and with your awareness just to be on it. Uh, well. Absolutely. There's a little yeah. light there that's... Yeah. That, that, it reminds that's me of Doi where I am. when he's dying, looking yes, beyond. Yes, yes, yes. You're looking yeah. beyond and yeah. seeing that. So yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. You talked out when you first came in, you said how you had reached out through the pain, the window pain, the emotional pain with this letter and... Uh, that now, five weeks later, you're feeling yourself sinking yes. back in. Yes. Is that a welcome sinking back in or does it feel scary? It's a welcome sinking back, yeah. but there's discomfort in the welcome uh, in the sense that it's not the easiest place. It's a place where pain lives, a uh, place where discomfort will be. Uh, I'm beginning to feel that I'm losing some of the connections that maybe I had with the letter. The connections, you know, that I could say, oh, I'm going to start doing this now. I'm I'm going back down and I'm letting myself descend. So there was a bit of an elation? There was elation. Yeah. And the elation has to go. I have to get, I, I'm very hard on myself. I have to get back to kind of pure yeah. reality. And sometimes yeah. if I'm not in pure reality, I'm not that happy because I'm like, hey, this is like having a drink of alcohol and it softens your senses. But the next morning, you yeah. know, you're going to have a headache because the alcohol is, is, is gone. So the softening yeah. bit is gone. So I have to sit down and go to a place where there is discomfort because my wisdom is telling me I need to be there. And it's okay after a while when you're there because you get used to it. And then you can, you can cry, you can write, you can shout. You can do all those hard things. Feel cold. Feel the breeze. Is, is, there's a hard breeze on you, you know. It's a north wind, kind of. And feel incredibly lonely, incredibly isolated, and incredibly different to the next parent that you're going to see coming in the door. That difference, that isolation, that, that kind of like, I'm a weirdo type thing. That's going to hit me right again and smack in the mouth. But, you know, I'm in the right place when that hits me. You know what I mean? It's like... I know where I need to be in order to get more of this stuff out, this grief, yeah. in order to let flow. So it's like a You're able to flushing the toilet. Yeah. You've got to flush this out. And if it will flush away, um, and then maybe it'll start stockpiling again if you start to take your eye off the ball a little bit and maybe be away from it. You have to come back. I, I like that quiet place as well, the quiet place of writing, the quiet place of grief. It's not nice, but it's comforting in a paradoxical sort of way because you know that you're, you know that you're real it's and that you're real. honest and you're yeah. truthful and you're not trying to play games with yourself yeah. and put on this false face. You need, you have to un, you've got to take off the skin from the onion. I love when you say that, it's that not it's, nice. it's real because often people say, gosh, how do you do what you do? You know, grief therapists with people yes. who are grieving all the time. I say it's such a relief to be with people who are real. Yes, you know, absolutely. That's my comfort zone. It doesn't yes. matter what that real looks like yes. as long as it's real. Yes, yes. But I, you know, how I am in the world, I have such a need to be around reality. Reality. You know. Because reality can, you know, we, we can lose ourselves. Um, we can, be, when we're taken away from it, pure reality isn't nice sometimes. 
to be in that colder, more real place. But I think as well, we have to stay somewhere in the, on the middle ground. We can easily get lost in the superficiality of life as well. But that's never going to happen to you if you lose a child. You never get lost in that again. No. Even never. if you did get lost in it before. Never. You won't. Yeah. No, that's, that's yeah. going to... What's it like telling your story, Kathleen? Yeah, I, <laughs> I have a slight um, headache. No, it's just because I have, mm. I get tense in my neck and I can get a headache on this side where I have a shunt in my head. But mm. it's sometimes I tense up when I'm talking about, uh, no, I wasn't always tense there. I was relaxed as well. But sometimes I can be hard on myself if I'm telling it. I can, I can start reliving it as well. Yeah. And the reliving is going back in there. And there was a little bit of that there but it's okay I'm fine I'm okay mm-hmm. I'll go home and I'll get some nice warm beads to put up my neck and up my head and any kind of mm. I might have a little bit of headache there is it important for you for people to know how you are it, it is what it, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, bit silly sometimes I can kind of forget about myself I have to tell you because when you sent me the text you said I hope you're all right in this and that was nice to hear that you were aware that I have to be easy and on myself and look after myself because sometimes uh, I would be the type that wouldn't be easy yeah. on myself and I just, I could give too much and then I can... And you've spent a lifetime as a professional yeah. carer to see so people. That, that, that there's no yeah. end to... So I have to learn a little bit of uh, me time and... Yeah. I, I try, I'm trying to fit that into my new life, you know, a little bit of me. On that note, can I bring you for coffee and cake down to the happy fair? What? Coffee <laughs> and cake? Oh, bring it on. Okay. <laughs> Suck it up. I'm definitely going to have some coffee Good. and cake. Let's Thank you so coffee much. And cake. So Thanks, Liz. And... That's a lovely smile you're giving me now. That's great. <laughs> coffee and cake. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. That was a really powerful almost two hours I think wow um, yeah <laughs> well thank you thank you for asking me as always um, it's just such a I hope that somebody can identify with yeah. some of the stuff that I've what do you remember on Wednesday night at the screening where we met you yes. had a screening down in the Whale Theatre yes. of the documentary on parental bereavement that woman down the back who said for 15 years you know that she's been grieving her her spouse her husband and she said it's just so nice to be in a public social yes. setting yes. where grief is talked about you know and you know after the screening the, the messages were coming in very fast of people just saying thanks so much for doing that yes. where we can go out and be Absolutely. amongst other grievers Absolutely. and not be the only one exactly you know exactly. that front row and there was only five or six people in a row that front row at the screening had three bereaved mothers you know, just in one row, just in one row, um, and and a brief sister, obviously as well. So, it this is precious, Kathleen. This is precious to. It's pre- I'm thinking of the woman who's in her house. You know, the last eighteen months and hasn't gone out since her child died. This is a window. This is the window to to those people. It is. It is. And with it's every huge. recording. That's who I'm thinking exactly. of. That's I'm not thinking of the people who might be judging it or saying it's not okay. I'm thinking of the people who are home right. alone, who are going to grasp one thing from this and, and that's, that's, that that's will huge. help them in their day. One thing. That's all. You couldn't put. You know. You couldn't put quality on that. I mean, that's 
And if every like so, every podcast is listened to around a thousand times at the moment, so if there's a thousand people who each get yes, one thing yes, from this, exactly, exactly. well, isn't that worth it? That is, you know, that is worth every breath, every yeah. word yeah. that has been said, and what it takes to say it. And I'm glad if, if if I've helped. I hope I have. And it's the kindness of that, you know, turning the grief into the kindness, the generosity, and the generosity yeah. of if I can help you with yes. one little drop yes. of what I've learnt or wish I'd known, then it's worth and, you know, bearing my to, heart and to soul. To listen to other people who have been through yeah. something yeah. not fully similar, but I would love to listen to them as well. Great, well, you'll, you, you'll find them. You'll find them on Shapes of Grief. Kathleen, thank you so, thank you so, so much. Let's go for a cake. We have cake and coffee. for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice and if your grief is making you unwell please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener supported podcast and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. Parting, so fierce is the warring of love.